Our sermon text comes from 2 Corinthians. We've been progressing through this book. Approximately one message per chapter. I've skipped a number of texts, but seeking to give you a bit of an overview in our weeks together. In chapter 3, we saw that we have a hope of glory and that we have the Lord who is the Spirit dwelling within us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And the light of the gospel displayed in the first part of chapter 4 But our text has to do with the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. I'll read verses 7 to 12, our text. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the word of God. May he bless it to our hearts and lives, and let us pray for a moment for his blessing. Teach us, Lord, the glory of the gospel, even in the humiliation of our Savior and our own trials, that we may display that glory and that treasure on the backdrop of our own weakness, that you alone may receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you have gone to a mall and found the ubiquitous jewelry store there. I haven't bought many things there myself, but you're always tempted to sort of drift on by and see those diamond rings or those jewels, those necklaces that are displayed, of course, so clearly. And usually they're displayed on a rather dark or even black background, maybe black velvet. When you go and see these gems and all their sparkling beauty, displayed, you don't say, what wonderful black velvet. No, you say, what incredible glory in these precious gems. The diamonds of those jewelry stores are generally displayed on that black background so that you will see their glory more clearly and want to buy them, of course. Well, the glory of God is much greater than the glory of diamonds or gems The world can even see that treasure of the glory of God in us, but we are weak. We are the black background upon which the treasure of God, the glory of God, is displayed in the gospel. Now we see this already, we saw it in the previous chapter, when the glory of God was displayed upon the face of Moses as his face was mysteriously shining Well, our faces don't shine in that way, but we are still reflecting the glory of God how? In our lives. But what does it look like? We don't look like angels. In fact, we're a pretty ragtag, seemingly defeated band. We look like hardly anything. What would people think when they see us gathered together on a beautiful day when we could be outside doing something else? Instead, we decide we're going to come and worship God on this day, what's the point? 
Why are you doing all this? People might say. Reflecting the image of Christ in our dedication to the worship of God, the presentation of his salvation glory. And when we get out of here, we will be displaying the glory of God even more so in our lives by his sanctifying grace. God gives light to Christians. He created the light to begin with, and he said, let there be light. But the one who said, let there be light, shines in our hearts by the light of the gospel, the knowledge of the glory of God, as we see in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's the treasure, the glory of God, and the fact that we know it and can show it in our lives. This is a glittering treasure, a cascade of diamonds to show God and his glory more brightly, even or more especially in our weakness. You have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There's always a temptation for each of us to say, look what I am, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look how tall I am, look how wonderful I look, look how I dressed up for Sunday or something like that. We kind of like to think about ourselves as special in ourselves. Well, we are not the treasure. The treasure is God's gospel of glory, the knowledge of the glory of God, the fact that we know the Lord. That's what counts. And that we point not to ourselves, but to him through Christ in the gospel. Now we do reflect his glory. We are being purified. We're made more like God. And when that happens, people see the difference. And they say, how is it that you don't do this, but you do that? How is it that you serve the Lord? How is it that you care so much about God's, what God's word says? Well, it's because we are being sanctified. We're set aside to the knowledge of God. We're reflecting his glory, and God has regenerated us. He's shown in our hearts the light of the gospel, as it says in verse 6. He sanctifies us and changes us from glory to glory. Well, what's this about the clay pots? We have this treasure in jars of clay. Well, we don't typically have jars of clay or plates of clay. We have usually fine fine china. But in those days, it was the easiest thing to simply grab some clay and maybe fire it in a furnace. But it was pretty plain looking. Now, the Romans knew about this too. And remember, we talked about that victory parade in the previous chapter, where they bring the captives before the watching Romans in the city, and they show forth not only the prisoners of battle, but the treasure that they captured from them. And they would display that treasure in clay pots on purpose to show it off, to show that we have a treasure now that we didn't used to have. Now, many treasures are kept on purpose in such a lowly place. Perhaps you remember the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found some time ago by a shepherd boy along the side of the Dead Sea. Well, they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they were kept in ordinary clay pots, rolled up in scrolls, or maybe there were some tablets. But they were lost for a long, long time. And these were some of the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament that were ever found, 
kept there in this dry and dusty place which preserved them, but also they were hidden for a long, long time. We don't say, well, because they were found in clay pots, they're not worth much. No, we say, this is a treasure of the word of God. Sometimes things that are very valuable are hidden in plain sight. Perhaps you know of Edgar Allan Poe. He had a story called The Purloined Letter. Purloined means stolen, okay, fancy word. So evidently there's a letter that might have been, let's say, a treasure map that told where there might be valuable treasure, and it was stolen and hidden somewhere in somebody's house. And so those who were looking for that letter said, I think it's in that house somewhere. Where could we find it? It's probably hidden in a very tricky place. And they did all kinds of things. They checked, they bored out the legs on tables and chairs in case there were a, a hollow spot. They looked underneath the floorboards. They checked in the attic. They broke apart the walls because certainly something that valuable would be hidden in a secret place. It turns out that instead of something very secret, that stolen letter was in a tattered envelope on the mantelpiece with a bunch of other miscellaneous papers. Who would think to leave your treasure in your mailbox? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But that's how it was hidden. It was hidden in plain sight. We see the glory of God in plain but humble sight in the people of God with all of their frailties and weaknesses. How many examples do I need to give? Just a few. Here's Peter. He didn't think he was so frail. He walked on the water over to Jesus, but then began to look around and wondered, what am I doing here? I can't do this. And he sank. He took his eyes off the Savior. He couldn't walk on water on his own. He was weak. He looked to Christ, and that's where his strength came from. He sinned often because of his pride. I will never leave you. Other people might leave you, but I will never deny you. And we know what happened there. He was weak in himself, which is why so many of us identify with him and say, well, if Jesus loved Peter, maybe he can love me. That's the basic idea of love for the weak, helpless, and sinful. We think of Abraham, who had many possessions, but he was not seeking for God. God found him. Abraham had many practices because of his pagan past and his father's house and the idols that he once worshipped. Therefore, it was pretty easy for him to fall back into deception when he lied about his wife being his sister. On more than one occasion, Abraham was weak. He was sinful. He was flawed. David, we know about, a man after God's own heart. How could he do it? But he sinned. He lusted after Bathsheba and made it so her husband would die in battle and therefore committing both murder and adultery. He sinned against God. And yet God saw to it that he was restored, though he had family problems for the rest of his life. The Apostle Paul himself was often despised as not very impressive. His personal presence is weak, it says in 2 Corinthians 10. And his speech is of no account. He doesn't sound very special. He doesn't sound all that eloquent. He doesn't look all that great even though his letters are weighty and strong. And, of course, that's what matters, what the Word of God was saying through his weak instrument. Weakest means, one hymn says, fulfill his will. Aren't you glad? (laughs) 
You're weak too. You are weak. And yet he is strong. Remember that hymn. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? Well, the Bible tells me so. And he just does. He set his love upon the weak. The Bible, therefore, doesn't hesitate to say that we are clay pots. Well, after all, we're made out of the dust of the ground. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve from the body of Adam. I'm quoting some catechism today. Some of you should recognize that. God is the potter. We are the clay. We are fundamentally humble, weak creatures. Now, he can do what he wants with us. Romans 9 tells us some of these vessels were for honor, some even for dishonor. We are all from the dust of the ground, though. We are not inherently honorable. God grants us the honor of salvation by his sovereign grace. We are from the dust of the ground. You can imagine that God might simply shake off the dust from his feet and say, I want to simply show my glory in myself. But no, he says, I'm going to show my glory in you people. Amazing. To show off the glory of God. We can never claim to be strong. We can never, though we love to do that. We like to think that we're stronger than we used to be. I hope you are. But I hope you never say, I'm so strong, I'll never fall. Pride comes before a fall. When you think you're strong, then you're going to fall. You must always be childlike in your faith. You must always say, I am basically weak. Treat me, teach me. As a little child would learn from his father. I am weak, but he is strong. But God uses that weakness to show his power. And you'll notice this in this text very clearly. Why does God put his treasure in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Remember the diamonds in the showcase at the mall on the black background You don't notice the black, but the black highlights the diamonds. The black adds to the remarkability of the glory of such gems by way of contrast. We wouldn't expect God to use us. You saved me, even me. That should be the continuous cry of wonder from your heart. How could God choose me? It's a surprise of grace. To God be the glory We don't say, to me be the glory, great things I have done. What a crazy hymn that would be. But people are saying that all the time. I'm a wonderful person. I did it my way, as Frank Sinatra once sang. To God be the glory. Now, I heard that at least one of you are a specialist in astronomy. You look at the stars or the planets at night, you better go in a dark place. Because there's light pollution. Do you know what that is? You look at the stars at night over the skyline, of the city, even here in Huntsville, and you're not going to see it very well because the light, even at night, is shadowing out or blinding us to the glory of those stars. So you go, the best place I ever went to see the stars was at the Grand Canyon. That was amazing. I went out there with a friend of mine. We were traveling to California by car. We got to the Grand Canyon, and we had the moon roof, in this case the star roof, and we opened up the star roof. Black night. I have never seen so many stars in my life. I thought there were a lot looking up around here, but you look up in some dark place, you will be astounded at what you can see in the darkness. Same thing. 
the light of the glory of the gospel of God is seen as a surprise of grace in the background of the darkness of sinners who are saved by his mercy. This doesn't make sense to the world. We have to brag about ourselves all the time. We have to take pleasure in the rich and the famous. We don't watch a TV show called The Lives of the Poor and Obscure. Well, there's a famous show called The Lives of the Rich and Famous. What's so unusual about the poor and obscure? We're all that way. What a great TV show that would make, I guess. I don't think so. We like to see the lives of the rich and the famous. The rich get the special TV shots at the NBA games. L.A. Lakers are famous for having all the movie stars sitting in the front row watching the basketball game. And, of course, the TV cameras zoom in on them. There's so-and-so. He's famous, isn't he? The rich and famous. The beautiful are pampered as movie stars. I think normally, unless you're a character actor, you have to be beautiful or you have to be handsome. You have to look like a leading man or like a princess to be in the movies. And somehow or other, we think that people who are beautiful have better opinions about politics or anything else, for that matter. Why is that? Well, because we hope that people will listen to those people that are famous, whatever that means. Famous for what? Pretending to be somebody else on a movie screen? Uh, what, what does that take? I can fake things, too. Does that make me better than somebody else? Can I be a movie star, too, and have better opinions? We have the rich and the famous, the beautiful and the pampered. But now look at the other side of the coin. The handicapped are ignored or worse in public places. The old are placed in homes and forgotten and considered to be less valuable because of their age. That doesn't make any sense either. The unborn are destroyed and burned, hopefully a little less now. But still, the insignificance, we say, of true human life, no matter how small, cannot be measured except by those who know about the image of God in the weakest, in the smallest, in the unseen, in the little. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound men. Great group we've got here. Hiding away, small little group, not many people. You drive by, you can barely see the sign. Sorry about that. It's a little hard to spot. And there you see it, and you go, okay, Providence, okay, what is that? I don't know. Sometimes people wander in, kind of by mistake. I've heard some of you did that. That's amazing. <laughs> but it's not the big cathedral that some people want. Let's go to the pink cathedral. There's one in Charlotte, North Carolina. Big pink place. Looks great. I'm not saying they don't preach the gospel. They probably do. But the glory of the gospel is not found in the building, for example. Good thing, right? Or in the people themselves. What is success for a church? It's certainly not to be found in outward things. Here at Providence Church, I like your name. You're speaking of God and his providence. But you are recognizing that God has power to change sinful lives. One of my friends lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, a very small church there. And there were a lot of people that were new Christians. A lot of people had troubles. He spent most of his time counseling people. And the reason why he was willing to do that is that he said that the motto, the unofficial motto of the church, was we fix broken wagons. Not very flashy business, is it? Wouldn't you rather see a beautiful car driving down the street? You could say, I have a wonderful car, but my broken wagon, if I'm a broken wagon, nobody wants me. 
But the gospel says you are broken by sin and God will fix you, will repair you, will love you, will change you. Are you broken? Do you feel broken inside? Maybe you don't look that way, but maybe you have hidden griefs or struggles. Are you broken by sin? Welcome to the club. Here we are, a bunch of weak sinners saved by grace, delivered from ingratitude to love. I find it most remarkable when you see small groups of people in a country without many Christians. I visited Japan one time, and 1% of the population of Japan are Christians of any sort. I mean any sort. 1%. 1 out of 100, which means we probably see 1 out of 200 or 300 people that we would say were probably believers in the gospel. Not easy to find those people. But in places like Sendai or a place in Tokyo, you might have a big church, 50 people. Oh, that's huge. About like this. 50 people! And they're going, where did all these people come from? I ask the same question. Because the whole culture is set against Christianity and into pride and prosperity and materialism and just having fun. What I remark about is how similar Japanese Christians are to us. They sing the same songs, different language, but the same themes of grace. Their faces shine. They have fellowship luncheons, just the way we do. They meet for worship, and they listen to the word of God. Same word of God, different language, right? And these are people that, how did they come to be? Where are all these from? Where did you come from? Why are you here? It ought to be a mystery in a way, a marvel of the grace of God to show that it is the power of God. God chooses the weak. Remember Gideon's band? God decided not to use a bunch of people, but 300 people to defeat a huge army with torches and jars and no weapons. The enemy was so guilt-ridden and frightened by a judgment that they knew they deserved that when they heard the trumpets and saw the light, they knew judgment had come, and they ran away and killed each other sometimes. That's how bad it was, or how glorious it is, for the gospel to come in the midst of weakness, to show there is the power of God. We saw in Hebrews 11 that though we are weak, God is strong and God works through us despite ourselves. All these, Hebrews 11 verse says, verse 39 says, did not receive what was promised. Many of these people did not receive what they were promised. Since God provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect, they were waiting for us. God was helping them to wait until Christ came, when there could even be more believers from all the nations to crowd in and to hang upon the hem of a garment of one Israelite and say, let us go with you. We have heard that God is among you. There was the glory. They of the old covenant, weak, wretched, impoverished, dead, are completed by more wretches and cripples and the despised of the world, sinners, all saved by grace, every one. How about you? How can you be so joyful? What have you been through? That you say, how can I endure it? How can I stand it? Maybe it's hard for you to stand it, whatever it is the loss of a loved one or struggling with 
a chronic disease or difficulty at work or persecution of one sort or another. How can you be so joyful? Look at you. Jesus was despised and rejected of men, though he was the Messiah. He was acquainted with grief, and people hid their faces from him. They didn't want to see him. Here's a failure, they said. If God is really God, let him come down from the cross. And Jesus died in weakness. It says in Isaiah 53, you wouldn't have picked him out of a crowd. He didn't look any different than anybody else, though his teaching, his power, his love, his words were powerful and distinctive and full of salvation. And yet the greatest victory that Christ ever won was to give up all of his power, apparently, and die upon the cross in open, naked shame for us. That's the power of grace in weakness. You are, in fact, more than conquerors through him who loved you. You are actually victors, though you look like you've been defeated. God uses you in your weakness. uses every pastor, every member, every elder, every deacon in their own weaknesses. They don't like their weaknesses, but they say, God, will you use me anyway? If we as a church recognize our weakness, then God will use us. You say, what can I do? You can do plenty. There are outreach ministries you can be involved in. I understand not too many people in the church are involved in them. Maybe the same old two or three families. Not that that's bad, but it could be better. Couldn't it be? Couldn't more people be involved in these ministries? More people invite people to church, testify of the grace of God. You can expect God to bless you as you use your gifts and show forth God's love in your life. Because if you do so, you will be displaying the death of Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. What does that mean? Well, we're not going to look like victors. The life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, but it looks like we're dying. Well, we are. Eventually, all of us will die unless Christ returns sooner than we think. We are weak. Death comes to all of us. Because of sin, we struggle. We experience a constant state of weakness, remembering that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do not think that it is something strange that you should have troubles. It is the way of life for the believer. We are weak. Look at this list of prayer requests. A bunch of victors. It's like a bunch of failures to me. Look at this. People in Ukraine being persecuted. Health needs of all sorts. Work needs. Those serving in the military in harm's way. There are victories as God answers prayers. But boy, do we need prayer. Boy, do we need the Lord's grace. We cannot survive without his love. And so it is. The kind of victor that you are doesn't appear to the world to be a true victory. You might be, for example, afflicted. And now we look at verse 8 and following. We are afflicted in every way. That means you are hard-pressed. Some people in those days were in prison 
or lost their jobs or had many problems or divorced, have wayward children wandering from the faith, beset with illness. Perhaps you've even lost loved ones, a child or a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a friend. You are afflicted. You are also perplexed, isn't it true? Sometimes you don't know what to do next. Something blindsides you, knocks you off your horse. You say, what in the world am I supposed to do now? Sometimes we're told to do the next right thing. What is that next right thing? Sometimes we don't know what the next right thing is. We just don't know. We are confused by life, perplexed. We don't know what to do next. We are also persecuted. Not maybe as much as some, but we are still receiving the despising of the world. We are neglected. Why is it that Christians are hated so much? What is it about Christians who are picked out as those who are worshiping God and the world says, let's get rid of those Christians? What harm? Well, because we worship no other gods and they want us to worship theirs or support their power or to be part of their agenda. And if Christians don't agree to go along, well, let's get rid of them. It's called the cancel culture. You've heard of it? Persecuted. Struck down. Beloved, do not be surprised, Peter says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. We look like losers. But in Christ, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That is, Christ suffered. We're not greater than our master. We suffer too. Though redeemed, though our sins are forgiven, we are given over to death for Jesus' sake, as it says in verse 11. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to look like a loser. You have to deny yourself. You can't brag on yourself. You've got to take up your cross, not live on your throne. You've got to follow him. We follow Jesus, and we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. That is what it means to carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus. doesn't mean we deliberately place ourselves in danger. But things happen to us that we don't expect. And we must readily expect whatever happens to us to be from the hand of God, to give us strength in him alone. Expect it. It's not easy. Why wouldn't he take us now? If you're facing suffering in the hospital... You say maybe to God, please take me now. You might be in that circumstance sometime. He will take you when he is ready and when his work in you is done. He will take you in his own time. Meanwhile, you have a job to do, and what is that? To reveal the life of Christ. In your weakness, the life of Christ is made more clear. Notice verse 10 and verse 7. Verse 10b, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Though you are afflicted, you are not crushed. 
I think of Paul again, stoned. He could have been crushed, and he certainly could have been crushed in spirit. I always am amazed that he's sitting there on the bottom of a rock pile, and he pushes the rocks out of the way, and he stands up, maybe bruised and broken, and he goes back to preach the gospel to show that the surpassing power doesn't belong to him but to God. Who else could do that but one commissioned by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? You rise up from every trial, as Paul did in those trials, with new strength. Paul stoned and gives up and gets up. He doesn't give up. You might be tempted to give up. You're to get up and to serve the Lord more. Though you are perplexed, though you don't often know what to do, you're not despairing. You despair of life, maybe, but not of God. Paul says, I thought I was dead. This is chapter 1. I despaired even of death so that we remember that God is the one who raises the dead. There is a new and increasing dependence in the Christian life the longer that you live. And I don't have to understand it all. I just have to believe that it's for my own good. Though perplexed, though I don't always know what to do, I have to say I will not despair. God will give me the wisdom I need. Though persecuted, even your darkest hour, you are not forsaken. Even though people, as we saw in chapter 11 of Hebrews, died without seeing the results of their faith, yet, yet, they were not forsaken. And God would one day raise them with us from the dead. Those struck down, not destroyed. For we who are living are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So verse 12, kind of a climax. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The apostles, the prophets, the preachers, the teachers, any Christian for that matter, giving of themselves to the Lord decreases, seemingly. But others benefit. Others are blessed. Life is working in others as we live for God. We will die, but others will live and we will join them in glory. Therefore, isn't that going to be worth it? God comforts the afflicted, soothes the perplexed, gives victory to the persecuted, and raises the dead. What else do we need? The power of God would ultimately be revealed. So it is said we are more, even more, even more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more than a victor through Christ who has won the great victory over sin and death and hell and we participate in his victory, even at death, we are more than conquerors through the one who has loved us. It is not always God's will that you get well or not die. Most of us will die, and maybe all of us, before Christ returns. God is still powerful in you. And even though people might not remember your name, Your name is written upon the palms of his hands. And the walls of Jerusalem are always before him. And the power of the resurrection that raised Christ from the dead will raise you from glory. And you will live forever. You will be there in glory. You will take eternity to measure the blessings of God. But for now, for now, he wants you to come to the end of your resources. For when you have come to the end of your rope, you are just at the beginning of delighting in God's power and infinite resources. 
This is what God says to us. So death is at work in you, in us rather, but life in you. Paul can risk his life in confidence that God's glory would be seen as people come to the Lord, and they're still coming to the Lord. Have you ever seen someone become a Christian, profess their faith in Christ for the very first time? It is a miracle of grace. I hope you have seen that, and you will continue to see it. There are people that I've come to know over the years that have become believers in Christ and are flourishing in their faith, weak, helpless, sometimes beset with their past, unable to escape their demons sometimes completely in this life. But they're still fundamentally changed by the power of God. Isn't that you also? Rejoice in the treasure that God has for you in the clay pot of our lives, shall we pray. Father, why should cross and trial grieve us? You have led us in the everlasting way, and though despised and rejected of men like our Savior, though acquainted with grief, we still have victory in our more than conquerors because of what Jesus has done, delivering us from our sins and unto sanctification and ultimately to glory in Jesus' name.